0: This is The Guardian.
1: The invasion of Ukraine is now entering its second week and events there are becoming even more horrific. Russian troops have landed in the city of Kharkiv The port of Maripol has reportedly been surrounded and Kyiv and other cities are under continued bombardment. Ukraine's president continues to appeal for more international help. We are fighting just for our
0: land and for our freedom.
1: Beyond Ukraine, there's obvious anxiety about Vladimir Putin's raising of his country's level of preparedness to use nuclear weapons. Boris Johnson is doing his best to sound hopeful and determined to play his part. Putin will fail, and I believe that Putin must fail, and that we will succeed in protecting and preserving a sovereign, independent and democratic Ukraine. Meanwhile, there's been debate about the UK's willingness to accept Ukrainian refugees and the political influence on Britain of associates of Putin, an issue the government now says it finally wants to tackle. As ever, there's a huge amount to talk about. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff and Salma Shah, former special advisor to Sazi Javid when he was Home Secretary. Hello to you both.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: And in a moment, we'll be joined by Luke Harding, The Guardian's senior correspondent, who's in Lviv. Before we talk about Ukraine in more depth, I wanted to ask both of you, as parents, so happens I'm a parent as well, about how you've been speaking to your children about Ukraine and what's going on. Gabby, your son is what?
2: 14, so it's, it's more a question of um, him talking to me, really, rather than the other around. I mean, we're probably a bit of an unusual household in that, like most journalist kids he's had the radio on in the background since he was born and way too much shop talk by breakfast and I did sort of regale his entire infant class with a detailed explanation of what a no-fly zone was (laughs) but these days we're sort of I mean he sees it all he's you know it's on his Instagram stories his friends are talking about it he's watched more Zelensky videos than I have probably so it's it's about sort of answering his questions honestly trying to be as open as I can it's a bit like talking to teenagers about sex really talking to them about war or difficult things in the news you have to meet them where they are with what they know, try not to take them sort of beyond what they know, but but kind of try and sort of assess what they know and, and, and answer the questions that they have. Openly and honestly, because they, you know, it, it, they're surrounded by it. They're steeped in it. It's not that you can you can't hide it from them at that age.
1: Salma, you've just had, had a baby, so this may not be relevant on, in that <laughs> sense. But your <laughs> eldest is five and a half, right? I mean, that's a that's a sort of tricky between age to talk about current affairs. because yeah. it must be there to some extent.
3: Well, the three week old is a very good listener, so that's um, <laughs> been helpful for me at least. But the the five and a half year old, I've kind of I've got to say it's it's sort of easier because you can be binary. You can almost a government line about there being goodies and there being baddies and actually you don't want to sort of over explain the the detail of of what's going on so you know different to you gabby i don't have to do that bit about you know contextualizing the stuff that she's going to be viewing because there's so little um and so in that sense i can also avoid all that stuff around the fear of, you know, potential disastrous outcomes like nuclear warfare, because I can just keep everything really light and really happy. And, you know, refer to that mean old man, President Putin, who's done a naughty thing to Ukraine, and just give her the concept of, you know, what is war when you're going to hear about it. And, you know, if she goes to a, a church school, so they say a little prayer, and she says a little prayer for the people of Ukraine before she goes to bed at night.
1: And um, what we're going to To try and soberly and straightforwardly look at today uh, are three things. One, the situation in Ukraine. Two, the looming refugee crisis, what that means for Ukraine itself, Europe and the UK. And thirdly, we're going to look at the Economic Crime Bill, which the government has revived, which it says is aimed at tackling laundered money and financial secrecy. First of all, I want to bring in The Guardian's foreign correspondent, Luke Harding, who's in Lviv in Western Ukraine. Luke, are you there? John, I am. Very nice to join you on Politics Weekly. Thank you so much for being here. We've just been talking, as you probably heard, about how we talk to our kids about this war. And one of the things um, that I would imagine is so hard to see from your perspective is the impact that this conflict is having on children in Ukraine, which right at the start of all this, five or six days ago, you mentioned in a tweet which I saw, which I found very moving. It was only like three lines, but you talked about seeing kids with colouring books come down to a, a bomb shelter. You must see those sorts of things, you know, on an hourly basis.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, so I, I was in Kyiv when, when the invasion started and immediately went to the <clears throat> basement of the hotel where I was staying and then around about sort of six, uh, a mum turned up with two kids, aged perhaps four and six, a boy and a girl. And the mum just sat down with her, her kids who were kind of bleary-eyed and yawning and, you know, being, being kid-like. And I noticed they had coloring books. And, and at that point, I have to say, I just teared up because actually these bombs were raining down on a city of, of three million people and... Um, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin says that he, you know, he's just hitting military infrastructure as a special operation. What we now know, week on, is that he is slaughtering civilians, I think, deliberately. And it's just a tragedy unfolding in real time. I, I left Kiev after a couple of days and, and headed out west. It, the, the mood was more and more ominous. And, and found myself in a traffic jam at 3am with thousands of families, people, women fleeing one woman who'd driven twenty-eight hours from practically the Russian border with her nine-year-old without sleeping, without stopping, left her husband behind, area now under Russian occupation. I met another family of three, an IT designer from Kiev at a sort of petrol station in the in in, in the gloom, holding a little kid, uh eight month old Tekan in a romper suit, you know, pert and wide awake. And my job is to describe the situation objectively, to to bear witness to what's going on here, to, to this
1: dark moment in history. But it's hard not to be caught up. Tell us about Lviv, which is, as you've mentioned, is where you're sort of suddenly based now. That's relatively close to the border with Poland, but also that's somewhere which is seeing... Uh, the mass arrival of refugees from across Ukraine. Just give us a sense of what you're seeing in the city right now.
0: Well, a huge number of people are, are coming here. They, yeah, I mean, some are, some are still going to the Polish border. There are two, three-day queues to actually get across into in, into Poland. I mean, it's it's a pretty desperate scene. And and I, you know, the, the, this nation is doing two things. You know, one, it's fleeing, uh, and and two, it's fighting. But also actually what you know what 's interesting is is the amount of volunteering that's going on sort of self coordination and wh- what i've seen to deal with this kind of ref- refugee or internally displaced sort of crisis is people organizing I mean I interviewed the, the local mayor uh, someone called Alexei Sadovi
1: and he he's told locals to go to go make molotov cocktails and the, and they 're doing it so it's interesting that there's a, a sort of a culture of self-reliance and networks and so on is suddenly being put to the most urgent purposes.
0: Yeah, and I think that it's too early to say who's going to win this war. I mean, this is, it, this is not a war, I don't think, with any victors. I mean, Putin's plan is clear. He wants to kill Zelensky. He wants to install a pro-Russian puppet regime. And it looks like he's prepared to turn Ukraine into Syria if that's what it takes. And uh, he, this deliberate, brutal shelling of civilian areas to, to try and weaken morale... But, you know, you talk to people here, and they are they are defiant. I guess I just hope, you know, having spent a lot of time here, you know, I've been here most, most of the last like, three or four months, is that the sort of West stands by Ukraine and doesn't lose interest. And, and just one last thing, John. The, the mayor, this wonderful mayor, Andrew Sodovi, I said, what can London do? He said, um... Boris Johnson can seize the villas of Russian oligarchs in London and use them to to house Ukrainian refugees and children.
2: I want to bring you back to something you just said about not being able to see sort of Putin's exit plan from all of this. You were our Moscow correspondent for years. You've spent a long time watching Putin. <laughs> What to, how should we be interpreting what he's doing at the moment? Do you think he's still there's been a tendency in the West to see him as a kind of, you know, a threat, but a rational actor, someone who was pragmatic, who didn't, you know, who, who very carefully calibrated what they were doing? Do you think that's still the case? Or are we seeing a more risk taking a more out of control Putin? Because that's obviously got implications for what the West does, how the West responds to him.
0: Yeah, I I mean, yes, it's a very good question. It's almost the most important question. We we know that, that Putin hates the West. We know that his thinking, his mindset is shaped by the KGB. It's xenophobic, it's paranoid, it's conspiratorial. He spent much of the last two years on his own, becoming an amateur historian, reading books on Ukraine. He seems terrified of getting COVID. There are serious questions about his mental fitness. And also, there's a sort of strategic mystery at the heart of all this. Why is Putin two decades into his... I was going to say leadership, but you might say reign, dictatorship. What, what, why is he doing this now? You know, we don't quite know. There's some element I think future historians will be able to get that we're currently missing, but he, he's obviously in a hurry. He feels touched by history. There's, there's, a, there's a messianic quality to his behaviour at the moment, and it, 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 there's, there's nothing good to be, to, be, be, to be said here because I think he really wants final victory and will do everything he can.
1: Luke, I hesitate to ask you this, this question to finish because it's, it's parochial. Um, But, you know, this is a a UK politics podcast, so I I hope I can be forgiven. You mentioned a moment ago the the politician in Ukraine who liked the idea of uh, houses owned by oligarchs in Belgravia being handed over to Ukrainian refugees as one example of the fact that people are talking about Britain, among other countries, and its response to this. What, broadly speaking, is the nature of, of what they say? Is it sort of frustrated or is it more appreciative?
0: I mean, the Brits are pretty popular together with the Americans, the Lithuanians, mainly because we deliver these anti-tank weapons, which are taking out, uh, you know, Russia, R- Russian heavy armour as it sort of trundles through. But I do think there's a frustration, which to some extent spills over, that, that London has been London-grabbed for too long, that, that successive governments, but particularly this government of Boris Johnson, have been corrupted by Russian money.
1: We're going to talk about that in due course. Thank you so much for making time to talk to us. Thanks, John, and uh, great to speak to you all. One of the most interesting things from that conversation, I think, was the was the sense that people in Ukraine are sort of quite appreciative of Boris Johnson.
2: He got two things right: he was right on Swift, and he was early on that. And yeah, he was right on rearming early.
1: So, talking about Boris Johnson, we are going to widen the discussion into uh, talking about UK political leadership, where he is, how he's doing. And all that stuff. I wanted to start with this clip from Boris Johnson's press conference in Warsaw on Tuesday. Uh, He was confronted there, as everybody probably knows, by a Ukrainian activist called Daria Kaleniuk.
2: Ukrainian people are desperately asking for the West to protect our sky. We are asking for the no-fly zone. We are saying in response that it will trigger World War Three. But what is the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister? Uh,
1: look, I just want to, to say that I'm acutely conscious that there is not enough that we can do uh, to, as, the, as the UK government uh, to help in the way that you want. And I've got to be honest about that. There's a really interesting tension, I think, at, at the heart of that conversation. Because in the response to what's happening in Ukraine, but also elsewhere among, among the rest of us, understandably... There's a lot of passion and emotion and moral clarity about what's going on there and a very sort of clear moral story, which is about good versus evil, a blameless country being the victim of an aggressor. And I, like lots and lots of people, most people probably, feel that stuff very strongly. It's hard to deny that that's the reality. But at the same time, and this week's a good example of this, if there's a lot of talk about Putin raising the the threat as far as nuclear weapons are concerned and the prospect of this war escalating in all sorts of awful ways. Clearly, that reminds you that compromises are necessary. Diplomacy is never about black and white. Morals very often don't enter into it. And in the midst of a a situation as delicate as this, politicians have to be very, very careful about what they say and the actions that they, they authorize. And Boris Johnson in particular, it seems to me, is faced with something that he's probably not used to. He's a politician who tends to talk in absolutes, you know, get Brexit done, Putin must fail, you know, these very sort of clear ideas about what's got to happen and what must be avoided and all of that. And suddenly, as that clip proves, he's having to explain complexity to people who don't necessarily want to hear about it. I just wonder what you both think about that and whether whether that's something he can do.
3: I think he's demonstrated, you know, against type that he is, he understands that this requires a lot more consideration. I also think is actually supported very well by an excellent defence secretary.
1: That's been noticeable, hasn't it? Ben, and, ben Wallace has performed ben Wallace very impressive. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I think that that is probably, and, and also the interesting thing is that Ben Wallace is, you know, a real pal of Boris Johnson's. You know, he is, he is a Johnsonian, Johnsonite, whatever you want to call it. You know, he ran his first attempt at a leadership campaign. So I think Boris probably takes his advice in a way that perhaps he wouldn't necessarily from people that he thinks are potentially political rivals so there is that dimension to it as well so I don't think we can discount the fact that actually Ben Wallace is is in command of his brief and I think explaining things well to the Prime Minister and has the Prime Minister's trust um, I also think that the stakes are so high here that even the Prime Minister as you say you know who prefers his sort of three word slogans and his boosterism uh, understands that actually perhaps uh Escalating this, even accidentally, um, into nuclear warfare, uh, is not something that he is uh, going to risk, and that maybe it is important for him to read his briefs.
1: I'm, I'm a little bit wary of this, and I wouldn't accuse you of this for a moment, Salma, but it might escalate into a sort of Boris fest if we're not careful. There's another <laughs> issue. There is another issue here, though, isn't there, which is that international alliances and cooperation are at the heart of all this, Yeah. and partly because of his time as as foreign secretary, Gabby, his reputation. <laughs> in the capitals of Europe isn't all that, is it really?
2: Yeah, but I think there's a sense, to be fair, that this crisis, which everyone is is genuinely gripped by, has overridden a lot of petty concerns. Is this the A-team that I would have chosen to take us into this, you know, scenario? No, to be honest. Am I comfortable having a Prime Minister who, you know, is always one day away from having his collar felt by the Met in charge at at this particular juncture? Not really. Would I choose Liz Truss to be the Foreign Secretary of the ages? probably not. But on the other hand, you do see leadership. We're not the only people involved here. Von der Leyen has, you know, provided really effective leadership for the EU. I'm really glad it's Biden, not Trump in the White House. You know, we are not the only leaders and agents in this crisis.
1: You mentioned Liz Truss a moment ago. um, We were going to reference her. When it comes to this question about the delicate nature of it and how careful you've got to be with what you say, you have to be cautious and careful and understand that, Things can escalate just because of things that people say. This is what Liz Truss said about the prospect of mercenaries, as I understood it, from Britain going to fight in Ukraine.
3: The people of Ukraine are fighting for freedom and democracy, not just for Ukraine, but for the whole of Europe, because that is what President Putin is challenging. And absolutely, if people want to support that struggle, I would support them in doing
2: that. So you support Britain, people from Britain going over to Ukraine to help in the fight?
3: absolutely if that's what they want to do.
1: Now straight away it should be made clear you're shaking your head ruefully Gary so, was, so, were people <laughs> so are people in Downing Street because they distance themselves the from world. that
2: as did the British Army. Oh it's a classic mistake born of just ranking experience I think it's wrong on Probably three fronts at least. Firstly, the last thing Ukrainians need is, you know, 18 year olds who have only ever seen war on a PlayStation turning up full of romantic ideas and getting themselves killed. Secondly, it's a potential offence under the Terrorism Act <laughs> to fight overseas in a war yeah. in which Britain is, British is not engaged. That. Yes, that. that's legislation, you know, it's, it's meant to deal with sort of people going well, over to Syria to ISIS, fight jihad. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it, it's not country specific. So, you know, that's a big issue. And finally, you. The last thing you want to do in in this kind of conflict is at the moment, you know Britain is not militarily engaged. We need to make it very clear that we 're not militarily engaged. If a bunch of old British paratroopers turn up in Kiev tomorrow, you know it becomes much easier for the Russians to say, "Oh, the Brits are blurring the lines they're committing mm-hmm. troops you know by the back door you're not it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to say, and that's why the rest of government immediately went nope
1: okay we're going to go on to another aspect of exactly that conversation about what we 're doing and whether it 's enough, and the, the clash between morals and politics and all that, by talking about the refugees and specifically the British end of this question, the United Nations says that up to four million people could flee Ukraine, um, which would make it the largest refugee crisis Europe has witnessed for decades it 's widely expected that four to five million people are going to cross ukraine 's borders and you know, I'm being slightly charitable here, the UK's position over the last few days has seemed to be evolving somewhat. How does a 75-year-old woman living with sirens going off, living in a basement, get to her son who's living in London? Can she do that? Is she able to do that? Because I can't see how she does. How does she go to Lviv, 11 hours drive away, get a, a visa, and then, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I don't see how she can get to her son in London, under the current system. Well, uh, th- this is a, a a consistent feature. Whenever we have humanitarian asylum schemes set up, we know that the difficulties on the ground m- make it practically very challenging, uh, and we need to be ready with our international partners, the Europeans, uh, others the EU around the world. The EU is saying they could, any, any Ukraine can come in, any Ukrainian can come in for up to three years. That was the Sky News presenter, Mark Austin, um, and some sirens going off in Kiev, talking to the characteristically confident and eloquent Dominic Raab. Um, By Tuesday, Boris Johnson said Britain would double the number of Ukrainian refugees it's prepared to take, up from 100,000 to 200,000. This is the Home Secretary Priti Patel announcing those plans in Parliament.
3: Firstly, we are establishing an expansive Ukrainian family scheme so that British nationals and people settled in the UK can bring a wider group of family members to the UK, extending eligibility to parents, grandparents, adult offspring, siblings and their immediate family members. Again, the scheme will be free. Those joining family in the UK will be granted leave for an initial period of 12 months. They will be able
2: to work and access public funds.
1: Salma, not for the first time today, I'm going to say, you worked in the Home Office under a Tory (laughs) Home Secretary. Why are the politics of this evidently difficult for the government?
3: I don't think the politics of it are difficult for the government. Something's difficult for the government. What's difficult the logistics of this, basically, because you have... In asylum claims, uh, you have, by the way, a system that is creaking already, if not sort of, you know, collapsing in parts. You have uh, 100,000 people from Hong Kong who've been granted, you know, uh, refugee rights and asylum rights. You have tens of thousands of Afghans who've been granted, and this is in a very short space of time, granted refugee rights. And now you're going to have 200,000 people from Ukraine. Now you can be expansive and broad and everybody wants that to be the case because people are fleeing and they are in need and you want to be able to help. But this is about where people are going to be housed because you know the hotels that, you, that you're that you depending on I imagine are probably already at capacity um, in terms of what the Home Office is already paying for so the idea that actually you ha- you are bringing people who already have family here means that there is some kind of infrastructure there for them to be allowed support I think if you're going to keep adding pressure to this there is going to have to be some give somewhere in terms of how the system is funded because what she just announced also is that the, the visa fee is going to be waived and the board order is self-funding, right? And everything that comes with it is self-funding. So Treasury is going to have to give you a whole wedge of cash in order to make this a much more generous offer.
1: I could accept that in good faith what you just said probably in the case of, of any other home secretary but it's pretty patel here no, only a I've, matter of weeks ago
3: I think this made is unfair. a great
1: play of the fact that she was denying any any meaningful practical passage for refugees in the UK so it's hard not to see it in that context but isn't she it?
3: but you know, actually by her own you know rhetoric and her own narrative she has been pretty hard on immigration and it's not where i am at all and on asylum and 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 refugee refugee status but she in in the face of this crisis I think she has legitimate reason to be concerned about numbers. And it's not about the fact that she doesn't want to be. I mean, I'm, I'm not speaking on her behalf, but this is my understanding. It's not, it's not the fact that she's is she not trying to be expansive and open and generous. There are considerations that we have to um, understand that are about the logistics and the practical but challenges.
1: George Osborne, Rory Stewart, Julian Smith, David Mundell, quite senior Tory politicians have made exactly the reverse argument, have said that that we have to open our borders to Ukrainians. And it's as simple as that.
3: But but it's not as simple as that. And they can say it because they're not responsible for those decisions. I mean, I can sit here and say it because it's easy for me to sit here and say it. And of course I want there to be a generous offer to Ukrainians who are fleeing for their lives. That's That's not the point that's under contention. You know, if I was in that situation, I would want to say to Treasury, we need to make this offer, we have to help. We're going to have to find some way of giving the border, which is essentially the way that, you, the way that it's funded, and thinking about how we, how we actually are able to help local authorities and our asylum system cope with people that are, that are coming in. Can
1: we just talk about the, the public? Because one of the most interesting aspects in this conversation is if you look at opinion polling, and actually if you just have sort of day-to-day conversations with people, people aren't where... Uh, perhaps some of the worst expectations about public opinion and public sentiment yeah, I might suggest that they would be on this.
2: I think we, we probably spend our lives at the garden over, overestimating people's lovely, generous, generous instincts. But in this case, uh, I think the government is underestimating the sort of generosity of the public on this one. I mean, when the Daily Mail has a front page at repeal for refugees and yeah. it's raised, you know, a quarter of a million pounds in 24 hours, that tells you something about where sort of middle England opinion is shifting to. And there's an interesting underlying shift. I was looking for something else entirely at some uh, research work as a, sort of, from Natsen earlier this week, which is looking at how attitudes changed in the pandemic. One of the most surprising things was that hostility to immigration has come down really quite sharply over the last few years. Now, you, you look at that and think that's not what you would assume from what you, you know, read in the papers or hear and see about you. But there is something is changing and there is always more... There's always more warmth, I think, towards refugees from a war when you can see the bombing on your telly. You know, you can see shells raining down and you feel a bit guilty that we're not doing anything about it. Public response then becomes pro-refugee.
1: Okay, that's a good place to pause. And we'll be back uh, after this to discuss another possible sea change and shift in Britain's problem with so-called dirty money. Welcome back. Right, now we're going to talk about the Economic Crime Bill, a bit of legislation which was originally conceived four or so years ago and is now being revived in the midst of this crisis. Boris Johnson spoke about uh, what the government's going to do at Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday. What we are bringing forward now is, is the exposure of the ownership of properties in London in a, uh, and across the whole of the UK in a way that has not been possible before and uh, that I believe will continue to tighten the noose around Putin's regime. Sam, I'm going to say it again. You used to work in the Home Office under a Tory Home Secretary. So, are you familiar with some sort of version of this? Was that in your field of vision when you um, were at the home I'm office?
3: Going to, I'm going to try and answer as much as many of your questions as I can. But as as we all are, I am subject to uh, the Official Secrets Act, and obviously, I am, I have been privy to certain information. So, I'm going to be a bit cautious in talking about.
1: But prior this to this whole area, okay. But prior to this bill being revived, when you were in government, were you familiar with, with what it wanted to do and the idea that yes. this was something that needed yes, to be dealt with? Yes. Okay. Can you tell me any more than that <laughs> within the bounds of the official secrecy? Uh,
3: what do you want to know specifically? I suppose
1: uh, the level of urgency that was attached to it. I mean, not all that, judging by how how it well, was I think shelled you've got twice.
3: To, the thing is, you've got to remember is that, you know, four years ago, we were absolutely on our knees with Brexit negotiations, uh, which seem so silly now. The legislation that was going through at that point and the way that it was being tabled was being tabled, in well, potentially being looked at in two scenarios, whether there was going to be a deal Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. And in that context, when you think about all the other legislation that was around at the time, some stuff basically fell away. Yeah,
1: it was also shelled in early 2022.
3: Okay, well, I wasn't in government
1: then.
2: I'm not, I'm not subject to the official secrets. So. Because uh, uh, I haven't got any secrets. But <laughs> I think it, it, there was an interesting exchange on this in the Commons um, last week as the, sort of the, the outbreak of, of hostilities in Ukraine. And, you know, originally we were expecting to see this bill much later, you know, about a year's time. Can you just and- pause there?
1: Because we need to just r- remind people of what, in theory at least, is going to be in this bill. As far as we understand it, the legislation will create a register of foreign owners of UK property. So the idea of essentially secret Asset ownership and property ownership uh, will be tackled, and it'll also beef up unexplained wealth orders against suspect oligarchs, making it easier to target their homes and assets. Yeah,
2: and it's not just about oligarchs because it's not it's not Russia specific. It's no, to do with lots clearly. all sorts of sort of you know foreign money that washes through London. It's to do with basically making it more transparent. So you have a very opaque sort of network of companies owned by people you don't know who owns them, and it's very hard to identify exactly who owns property. So it's about sort of breaking that that opacity. So we were expecting to see this bill in about a year's time, and, and initially when it was, it looked as if you know war wasn't going to change that, and it, it was, Labour was was hopping up and down saying, "Look, bring this bill forward, you know, and we will give it a very easy passage through. We need it done now." So it didn't it didn't feel as if it was initially regarded as urgent, even at the outbreak of of hostilities in. In Ukraine, so that gives you a rough idea of of how much I guess government wanted to do it. But now, of course, it's becoming you know a key part of our key plank of our sanctions, and gives you the you know it's it's becoming a sort of key demonstration of our of our willingness not just to do this now while the eyes of the world are on us, and then forget about it in a month's time and go back to cozily how things were. You know, the legislation is what takes this from. Something we've, we've only done when the camera was on us to this is really a step change in the way that we deal with foreign money coming through this country.
1: It's also a step change, though, in something which we've known about for years and years and years, particularly when it comes to London is that lots and lots of so-called dirty money, ill-gotten money, indicative of what some people call kleptocracy, in other words, you know, sort of high-level embezzlement and robbery from countries' economies, and by extension, their, their populations. That was going on, and London was a haven for this money, and that, that process, to some extent, was in- encouraged politically. Certainly a blind eye was turned to it.
2: Well, certainly tolerated. You know, whether yeah. it was encouraged, it was certainly tolerated. And I... and. I think there are sort of two strains of that. One is the degree of Russian money in particular that went into the Conservative Party, so political donations and the extent to which politics was reliant on Russian money. But also, you know, society was reliant on Russian money. The London property market is reliant on oh, you, money, of you know, the London all economy. All of these things, you know, suddenly become dependent on it. And there's a sense that we, you know, we turn a blind eye to it because it's, it's somehow uncomfortable to go too deeply into that. And because suddenly you have a large swathe of businesses that are actually reliant on this money and it's not easy to withdraw that. I
1: mean, it's a huge change we're talking about here. And I just wonder whether reality can match the sort of rhetoric we're hearing from the government, because it would make London, for example, a very, very different place, wouldn't it?
3: Would it? Yes. There's two things that I think thematically we need to consider in this case. Number one, you know, we pride ourselves on the fact that we have an open economy. And the downside of that is that you do have, as you rightly point out, dirty money that is stolen from, you know, people from around the it world is. that can be spent, um, you know, quite freely and easily. I What I don't know, and what I think would be interesting is, you know, us versus other capitals, because I think we've taken this sort of laundering um, Russian money uh, in London and not really challenged whether other European capitals have done To be fair, there's similar. a similar
2: debate about this in the US, there's a similar debate about this in New York and Miami other, are the two other know, cities you are, see referenced There are similar debates about this, we're not the only people.
3: Let's think back to what
1: Luke Harding said at the, to- at the top of this podcast. He talked about the fact that the idea of London as a haven for dirty Russian money is common currency in Ukraine, Right. They're not talking about Paris and Berlin to the same extent, nearly the same extent. And that does tell you something.
3: We have this position where for a long time, you know, all the way through the mid 90s to now, and you know, similarly with China for the last 15 years, at least, we think that actually what we're doing is linking ourselves up to these countries in a way that means we are looking at deeper relations. We are moving all in the same direction, pulling in the same direction towards this free liberal democratic world that we're eventually going to live in. The fact is, you know, a lot of that is delusional thinking. As, as we're seeing now is that you know actually you can't sort of suddenly change the culture of a country and expect it to be more like you and having those links and sort of doing that business and being more intertwined with these countries and you know the elites of those countries doesn't necessarily lead what to if this it's us environment like yes them. yes yes exactly and yeah that, think...
1: it's not that they get pulled towards us we get pulled towards, yeah, towards them, them.
3: And, and that is always the danger and I think you've always constantly got to be calibrating that because it's the long-term view it's not the short-termist view and I think A lot of the problem of this has been that short-termist view. I'm
1: going to sound a bit like Boris Johnson, and I'm going to talk in terms of absolutes and simple solutions and all this. A big shift, Gabby, is required here, and I just wonder... How confident you are looking at this? A and big it's shift is happen. required
2: here, but I think what's been what I've taken comfort from in the last week, actually, um, is the sense that firstly, there are big shifts going on anywhere, everywhere. Things that you never thought would happen. We're in sort of Switzerland and Monaco saying we'll join in economic sanctions yeah. on German Russia. German defense spending, you know, German defense spending. All of this, you know, our world is changing around us. Things that have been too difficult to do for a long time, we're suddenly realising that we're going to have to do. But the thing on, on on the money side, particularly, what I've been really struck by is the the disinvestment at huge cost in you know joint energy projects with Russia, BP, Shell, pulling out of, you know, these are really going to hurt their businesses. These are not sort of, you know, a little gesture to corporate responsibility. These are big divestments. And I think, and they're also shaping, they're not just shaping our financial strategy with Russia, they're they're shaping our energy strategy. I, I have one hesitation with getting too hung up on the whole economic sanctions question, which though, which is, I don't see any evidence yet that although all these things are good and should be done in their own right? I don't see any evidence that they're holding Putin back. I don't see him thinking, oh, well, hang on, I'll stop shelling Kiev because you know, now we're taking Russian kids out of boarding school in wherever it is. Mm-hmm. You know? and, I, and I think we tend to kid ourselves. We want economic sanctions to work and to work quickly enough to save lives, and I think we may be kidding ourselves on that front.
1: I suppose the obvious rejoinder to that is that it's very early in this crisis, and in all likelihood this is going to go on for years and at the moment, 99% of our attention, quite rightly, is on Ukraine and Russia. But the effects of this are rippling through British politics and will continue to, which I suppose is why we're here. And you can join us again next week where we'll be talking once again about British politics and the Ukraine crisis, among other things. For now, it just uh, falls to me to say thank you and goodbye to Gabby Hinsliff and Sal Michelle.
2: Thank you. Bye.
1: Thank you to you for listening. Finally, if you enjoy hearing The Guardian's Jonathan Freeland discussing US politics every Friday, you'll doubtless want to subscribe to his new podcast as Johnny's show won't be available on this podcast for much longer. It's called Politics Weekly America and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So to get all the latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America out every Friday. This show was produced by Ivor Manley. Sound and music were by Axel Cucutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back next Thursday.
0: This is The Guardian.